Aussie music is something to be proud of. Wear it like a badge. Because it's Australian bands and artists that are the influencers of so many other musicians the world over. So at Triple M, we're proud to be able to showcase the power of the Aussie music scene. Paying both homage to the greats that have stood the test of time, right alongside the current, the emerging, the future influencers. The ones that will be next to make their mark on the global music scene. If it's Aussie and it rocks, it's right here. This is Triple M's Homegrown with Matty O. Yes, right around the country, 52 stations and on the brand new listener app. Where do we start with this guest? I'm saluting. Radio pioneer, Radio Hall of Fame inductee. The reason why so many of us are here today, and while he won't admit it, he's a mentor to so many. And he's done it all from humble beginnings, audio engineering in Bega, from Sydney to Melbourne, announcing, presenting, program director, the pioneer of Triple M footy. It's something that is streamed all around the world. He's given us some of our favourite shows too, The Degeneration, to name... And that and plenty more. And he's responsible for this show too, Homegrown. Not to mention he was at the helm when Australian music was really exploding. Cold Chisels East, the Skyhook. And let's talk about how diverse it was too. Songs that we know and love. He was there when anthems were born. Welcome, the godfather of rock, the one and only Lee Simon. Oh, stop it. Triple M's homegrown, mate. Welcome. Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Welcome. Is that all? (laughs) Can I go now? (laughs) Uh, It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Lee. Uh, I mean, like you. Great to be here. It is, uh, you know, not only, like we're saying before, you're the reason why this show exists, but so many shows are, you know, a pioneer in so many ways. And kind of, you know, when we kind of go through your career, and, you know, we go back to bigger, back to the early days, you know, moving to Sydney, moving to Melbourne. Does it feel like a different life? Or does it feel like yesterday? It feels like yesterday. Yeah, nice. It really does. Yeah. It really does, which is a great thing. Uh, enjoyed my time doing what I did do. Yeah. And like stumbling into a studio every now and then like I am right now. Yeah. And <laughs> we were talking about before uh, how much radio has changed, just, uh, you know, physically as well. Like we're talking about a radio shift when you first started can you describe getting there at the start of the day? I'll explain to the listeners now. They might have a few ideas. Everything's, you know, on computers now. It's a lot easier to kind of program music, uh, you know, make it sound. It was, there was a lot more to it when you first started. Can you explain the start of a radio shift to the end of a radio shift, what that involved? Oh, God, it was a completely different era. Uh, we're talking about the 70s. One, there were fewer radio stations than there are right now. So... Radio had the opportunity to be more things to more people than radio can be these days. So it wasn't unusual for me. And you know, Melbourne and 3XY or 2SM in Sydney, where I worked back then in, in the mid-70s, your shift went for three hours. During those three hours, the high-rotation songs you would play twice. Um, they went around every 90 minutes. Uh, we actually played records. We had turntables in the studio. Yeah. Love that. Beautiful Technics decks, and I wish I'd kept some of them when they threw them out. And it wasn't unusual for you to play Black Sabbath going into Olivia Newton-John, <laughs> going into Led Zeppelin, going into Skyhooks, going into Helen Reddy, I Am Woman, going into some art rock bombastic big British thing, <laughs> yeah. uh, punk rock, this, that. We played 
everything. And we played it because it felt good and it would fit in the mix. People would have heart failure at stations now if you put a playlist in front of them what we were playing back then. In terms of the range and the scope, uh, it's incredibly more scientific uh, these days, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. Um, And it's much more tightly controlled. People find a much tighter niche in which to work and there's a lot of reluctance to kind of step outside of that, with the exception of shows like yours, this one here, yeah, yeah. where you've got the license to actually bring stuff in that can be a little bit out of there. The common theme being, of course, Australian music. Mm. Australian music also was just flying at that stage. Pub rock was enormous. This is before a lot of pubs decided putting a DJ uh, in a TJ booth in the corner of a room yeah. cost about a dollar thirty <laughs> compared to having a band and all the bullshit that came with having a band in there in yeah. terms of riders and this that and the yeah. other and dramas with crew and how do you get this band out of here in time for them to go to their next gig yeah. so that the the band that's going to follow them uh, are they going to arrive? Is there going to be a brawl in the car park, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? It was a really exciting time, and it was a time of um, uh, there was a renaissance, I guess, and the cringe factor had disappeared in the 70s. There was a time prior to that where, oh, if it's Australian, it's no good, it's got to be from overseas because therefore it'll be better. That got wiped, and I'm so happy that it did, and we worked really hard to prevent Yeah, to. Yeah, how, how did that kind of happen? What was it? Great Australian bands getting airplay. As simple as that. Uh, And the fact that the bands that we were playing, you could also go and see performing live. Uh, There was so much live music happening. And with lineups that I think if you tell people today about who you could go and see at the one gig, at the one venue on the one night, you could go to a place like, uh, I don't know, the venue on the upper Esplanade in St Kilda, just down the road from the Espy. And you could go there and on a given night there'd be uh, metal as anything in excess and um, uh, the models, for example, Uh, or Midnight Oil um, uh, and another another band that was involved with their management company. Uh, Midnight Oil and Cold Chisel would be playing together. Um, It was just a completely different time, uh, a different mindset, uh, and a different commercial basis behind all of that. Um, You could easily justify doing what you did. Things are much tighter now. I think we know about the excitement of the pub scene and stuff from like, we hear it from bands. Can you explain what it was like being a radio jock as well? Like you would finish a shift, then you'd go straight out to a gig and then you'd come back the next day. Like being a part of that as well and, you know, you're getting people calling in, you're interacting. On the other side on radio just must have been such a buzz as well. The thing with radio stations, and especially pure music radio stations, was that the majority of people who were on air there, the majority, not all, uh, were doing it because they loved music. Uh, And are pretty shit musicians, myself included. <laughs> myself so, too. So what do you do? Uh, oh, yeah, listen to you. Uh, so what do you do? Uh, well, I'll play the stuff, and and that'll be my part of it. Um, and if I can have a tiny peripheral role to play yeah. in helping a band move up, move on, mm. um, that's a great thing. That's a bonus. In terms of... Uh, you know, the life we led at the time. Yeah, you do your shift and then you go out and see a band and then you'd see another band, then you'd see another band. Um, In many cases, this was before drink driving laws that kind of slowed things down a bit for everyone. It wasn't unusual to go and see three or four bands playing one night and you'd go and catch an early set from someone like, uh, you know, an eight PM set. Uh, then you go to a different place for a ten thirty set, then a midnight set, then a one AM set or a one yeah. thirty. Uh, 
bands played till all hours of the morning if you knew where to go to see them. Yeah. Uh, so it was everywhere if you wanted to go and see it. Yeah. Um, you, you were spoilt for choice. Absolutely. The most difficult thing was, shit, if I go and see this, I'm going to miss out on that. What, uh, a, oh, what so, a time. Yeah, what a time. F- first world problem. Yeah. <laughs> now, your nickname is The Godfather of Rock oh. at Triple M. I'd like to go back to... Uh, <laughs> A chat I had with Glenn Wheatley, which uh, before he passed away, and I got him to talk about the origins of Triple M, and I, I'd love you to hear this. I broke Little River Band America on FM radio. I was coming back to Australia, and I'm still listening to 3XY, all AM radio. So why don't we have FM radio? So the next two years, I walked Parliament House carpet threadbare, trying to convince every politician I could run into why we needed to have FM radio in Australia. The problem was we'd given the FM band away 50 years ago to fire, police and ambulance, the essential services. So I had to convince everybody, we should put the essential services up in UHF where they belong. Mm. We free up the FM band and we've got a whole new business. I finally convinced the government of that rationale. And so the tenders came out and I won the first tender for Melbourne uh, being Eon FM. And we were the first station FM station to go to air. I mean, we and I wanted to be the first so badly. And, <laughs> and, and we, the, the, the studio was was lined with egg cartons held up with chicken wire, Whoa. and the smell of sol- and the smell of, smell of soldering irons was still rife in the air as we're going to air. I just remember we were put together by alligator clips, you know, <laughs> but we got to air. We were the first to go to air, and Eon FM, of course, I I, I, I would later change its name to Triple M. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's the heritage of, of your good station. The best memories I ever had was of Eon FM. What a time, what a story. It was a fabulous time, so exciting, uh, and a rare opportunity. Very few people have been lucky enough to be involved in building a radio station from the ground up, walking yeah. into uh, an empty building, and six months later, it's a fully-blown radio station with on-air people, uh, a record library to die for, yeah. um, excited people, music fans, uh, and it was a small operation. I think there were about 35 of us working there when the place first went to air, yeah. and these days it's not unusual for a radio station to have 150 people on yeah. board. Yeah. Um, we made our own decisions. It was all done on gut feel. Uh, it was done on what what feels best. Yeah. Um Research hadn't made it uh, into the uh, research hadn't become the thing that it now is, yeah. where pretty much every decision had to be backed up with. Oh yes, and we've done research on this, and it, it ranks a particular number above which you play things, below which you don't, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was all about a feeling, and uh, somehow, uh, and we stubbed our toes along the way. It 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 worked. It's an incredible story, and it, it, I feel like something like that could almost be a movie. I, I feel like that excitement of starting the first FM station in Australia when music was really happening like it was, it was just like it just seemed like everything rolled up, you know, rolled into where it was supposed to be. The timing was great for those of us who were lucky enough to be involved from the get-go. In fact, from yeah. get-go minus six months. Yeah. Uh, I remember I started, I think, late January in 1980, and we went to where in July, mm. uh, July the 11th. At midnight, uh, Peter Grace on air at, at, at one second past midnight. Yeah. Uh, and we were in that studio, the weekly referred to, egg cartons, hessian sheets over that, chicken wire, alligator clips, temporary, wow. uh, temporary while uh, the chippies and the builders were building the rest of the radio station down the track there. Yeah. Um, uh, super exciting. Great parties as well. We, we knew how to party. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, credit where it's due, 
there was a lot of excitement from the music industry that FM came into the equation, and that opened doors for us, yeah. uh, which previously were difficult to open in the AM-only era, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and bands wanted to be involved. Uh, we went deeper into albums than uh, the AM stations were doing. Went too far with that to start off with. Uh, for the first year, we were a little bit too cool for the room, and we kind of blew it up and started it again a year later, and it just went punta after okay. that, yeah. Do you remember your first on-air shift at Triple M? Uh, not really, no. No, no. it was that afternoon. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to be on air at the time, and at the last moment, there were a couple of us who were involved in uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff, in making yeah. the station and... Uh, yeah, programming the place, uh, who we'd had an on-air background, mm. uh, we were convinced to just to get us started. Do you feel like doing something on air as well? And of yeah. course you did, because it's always good fun to do that. And it was uh, fabulous to be able to do so on our own terms for a change. Absolutely, yeah. and yeah. it's funny. I speak to uh, I spoke to you know uh, you know Michael Spivey from uh, from Bad Loves, uh, Bad Loves, and um, he was talking about one of his pinch yourself moments, which was he was driving down St Kilda Road when he heard his song on the radio for the first time, actually driving past Triple M. And it's so funny how, you know, a lot of um, artists from that time, a big highlight for them was hearing themselves on Triple M. It was just like, it was about as big a buzz for the band as it was for, you know, you guys playing the music and, you know, starting this amazing thing. Well, that kind of underscores what I said before about the fact that the bands loved the fact that we were there. We loved the fact yeah. that the bands were there. Yeah. Uh, it was a marriage made in heaven. Absolutely. And uh, I'd like to play you another grab now. And I think why... Australian music was so exciting then. You had shows like Countdown and you had the one and only Michael Gadinsky who was starting Mushroom and quite the character he was and, you know, why he was such a titan of the industry. I'd like to play this grab that uh, I got from him talking about signing Hunters and Collectors. I was obsessed about signing the Hunters and Collectors. Obsessed. And when I get obsessed, I don't like losing. And there was queues down the road for all their gigs. You could feel the floor pumping at the Seaview Ballroom. But they were very intelligent guys. They were part-time jobs. The band was a fun thing, but the singer had such a strength and they wrote some incredible songs. And the only way I could get that band to sign was to make them feel that we were setting up their own label. I'd seen it before internationally where acts had gone on. In fact, the white label came because that was the final thing to really seal the Hunter's deal. I'll never forget it. This was when I was in full motion, standing on my desk in the office going, if you guys don't sign, Mark Seymour will recall this story very well. There's only one Gadinsky, hey? Uh, it's just beautiful to hear his voice again. Mm. I can't erase from my phone any of the phone messages he's left for me. Yeah, yeah, you two obviously quite close. Miss him. I I think about Michael every day, and I remember that time very clearly. Michael had made uh, the very difficult decision, and in fact, he uh, stroked his chin for a long time before he brought Kylie on board. Um, There were others who were pushing for him to do that, and Michael knew that a label then meant a particular type of music. Um, And you could look to overseas to see that if you were on Atlantic, you were a a label mate of Aretha Franklin and this, that and the other. If you were on this label, you were a label mate of these people. And Mushroom had uh, a common theme to what the artists were Mm. uh, on Mushroom up until Kylie came on board. Um, She was so left of centre. And 
an incredible success beyond that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not bagging anything here. But I can also understand why some bands with him, oh, do I want to be on that infamous pale yellow label with the uh, the mushroom on it? And what Michael said then um, was a bit of lateral thinking and creating yeah. the white label uh, to get the incredible hunters and collectors on board. Absolutely. And 50 years of Mushroom this year. Yes. Yeah. It's quite special, isn't it? We're getting some amazing covers that we've heard from all the bands that are playing and there might be something happening in November uh, as we're waiting for an announcement. But, uh, you know, it's crazy. 50 years of Mushroom and it's done so much for, you know, Australian music and Melbourne music too. 50 years is a very long period of time, unless you're my age. (laughs) Um, And the fact that so many Australian artists are still relevant and still happening from 50 years ago. Um, whether you're talking about, and it's not quite 50 years, but Jimmy Barnes has been around for close to that. If you're talking about the very early days of Chisel in the mm. 70s, and here we are yeah. a long way down the track. John Farnham, if it wasn't for the uh, the illness that he's been dealing with, would still be out there doing it. Uh, ACDC is still doing it, and there are still bands that uh, were around that long ago yeah. who are still around and still incredibly relevant and happening. Also, every one of these artists at the time would have said, I don't know what I'm going to be doing when I turn 30 because uh, there's no way that uh, we live in a world where you can be in a band if you're older than 30. Yeah. And there are so many great Australian acts, uh, whether they're solo performers or bands, yeah. who are now in their 70s and still out there yeah. because people want them to be out there. And I'm not yeah. talking about the nostalgia side yeah. of it. I'm talking about... Uh, yeah, pe- totally. Yeah, they, they pull in the boomers, but they also get young people yeah. uh, in there as well. Look at Terrell Braithwaite. For God's sake, who would have thought that one song from Ricky Lee Jones would resurrect and make people realise, God, I love this Terrell Braithwaite guy. Christ, he can sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if they go back and go back through his prior history, yeah. um, there's this incredible legacy that he has uh, yeah. behind him that I think would astonish a lot of people, himself included. Absolutely. Well, we had Daryl actually in last week. Okay. And we, and we had a chat that went over for an hour. And I think what you're saying before, like those songs are timeless. Exhibit A, he got up and performed with Harry Styles. Yes. In Sydney. Yes. You know, and sung that song. How that kind of happened was Harry was playing that song as a a warm-up song and got the biggest sing-along of all time. And Harry's realized, wow, this song is resonating with people, played up, and it got almost a bigger reaction than some of Harry Styles' songs. So like you said, it it is incredible that, you know, what these Australian songs, what legacy they leave, and they still live and breathe as strong today as they ever had. Spot on. Uh, and this hope for you as well. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, while we're on radio, I'd like to quickly make a transition over to TV for you. Uh, uh, a little show. Yeah. I think it's a bit warped. I think someone's uh, put it up for a video or a cassette onto YouTube. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to tonight's show. You'll see tonight a double from Stevie Nicks. We've also got Mental as Anything, Weird Al Yankovic, 
The Oz Profiles on Ice House. There's also Robert Hazard, Shriekback, The Electric Light Orchestra, Dave Edmonds, Annabelle Lamb, The Thompson Twins, Fun Boy 3, Bow Wow Wow, Kate Bush. And we're starting off tonight with Blamange, whose song Living on the Ceiling was a big hit for them here a short while ago. Night Moves. Night Moves, 80s version. I'd forgotten <laughs> that theme. Uh, the original theme was um, Parker's Band by Steely Dan. Great, of course. Um, and by the 80s, music had changed and the show had changed as well. But listen to that lineup. What a nostalgic what little trip yeah. uh, back there. Blamange living on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. My God. Uh, they were fun days. That yeah. started in 77. Gadinsky and myself were called into a meeting at Channel 7 uh, with a guy called Gary Fenton, who sadly passed away not long ago. He was the content director there. Mm. Uh, and a guy called Andrew McVitie, who was just this live wire into Channel 7, who was harassing Fenton to get a music show on air. Uh, Countdown was huge but it was mainly singles-driven and pop-driven. Yeah. Pop is not a dirty word yeah. at all, yeah. uh, and I mean that. Uh, but there was room for other stuff to get played. And uh, so we did that. It was sort of, uh, Night Moves was promoted as the alternative rock show. Uh, and poor old Molly, who I adore and love dearly, was not very happy about that <laughs> yeah. until he realised that the two of us could live together in harmony. What time was it on? 11.30. Okay. Um, it, it was the go out, watch bands playing, and be home in time to watch Night Moves at about 11, 11.30, order in a pizza, uh, nice. fire up a bong, uh, <laughs> and, and, and drift off into all of this music. This was the audience, not me. Uh, of course not me. Never happened. Never happened. Uh, and it went for two hours. We had the luxury of two hours on air. Yeah. Um, so we could play really long stuff and play two or three tracks from an artist. We'd do a feature every week that went for half an nice. hour. Uh, we had other people involved in the show like Peter Grace and Chris Maxwell and and others and uh, bands would come in the show was live 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 oh, live live to so air cool. and so a band would come in having done an early set at Martinis or at Bombay Rock or wherever they'd been yeah. and they're on their way to the Village Green for the late set that they were going to do there um, it was a roll of the, the dice <laughs> Every now and then they came in a little bit upside down, which made for an in interesting interview. Uh, it's captivating. People want to see that. You know, oh, and, and it was real. It, yeah. it, and everyone knew it was. None of us had the vaguest idea what we were doing. None of us had done yeah. what we were doing before. And it was, uh, I think I was 22 when the show started. Yeah. Gadinsky was 23. McVitie was 21. Yeah. Um, the the uh, floor manager wasn't a floor manager, the director wasn't a director. It, just all these young people in their <laughs> early 20s were given a chance to put together a TV show that was only going to last for six weeks. And it went for about seven or eight years. That's how it should be, though, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, you, yeah. People should just be given that kind of freedom to uh, do it. And like you said, you know, because you know what you want, because you're that fan yourself. Yep, yeah, uh, simple as that. I also understand why that's a very difficult thing for TV stations to do these days. Yeah. Uh, but there are other vehicles available now. Mm. Uh, and thankfully, we live in a world where uh, if mainstream media won't pick you up, there are other ways of getting yeah. your stuff out. I'm a firm believer that the world's greatest ever song will never be heard because some kid somewhere 
uh, a woman or a man sitting in their bedroom with their gear in front of them, whether it's a, you know, sort of the uh, stripped-back version of Pro Tools mm. uh, and some keys or a guitar or whatever, and they write a song, but they never have the opportunity to, to, to put it out there. Mm. Or even if they do, they're one of thousands of podcasts yeah. uh, that are out there, and somehow you've got to rise through the pack to do that, uh, yeah. which is a shame. But it's a different time, different era, and bands emerge from different places now uh, than they did back then. Do you think it's harder now with all the pressure on social media and you've, yes. or, you know, yes. you're going to be your own marketer? There's, there's yeah. so much to it now. No, there, look, there is. Social media is both a really fabulous thing, but it's also a very dangerous thing. Um, uh, and it gives people the opportunity to spread the good word mm. uh, if they love something, but it also gives people to anonymously tear something to pieces because they don't happen to like one sentence that somebody in the band said mm. at a media conference and they want the band yeah, to die exactly, as yeah. a result. Um, I, I, I'm not into the punishment that social media uh, likes to dish out now mm. where I'm insanely offended by something that somebody said, so I want them to lose the ability to earn money. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's brutal. It, it is brutal. Mm. Um and it changes the way the whole world now operates. In mm. some cases, for the better. Yeah. In many cases, not so. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, oh, sorry. That was. That was... No, no, no. That's it's completely accurate. That's yeah. that's that's what musicians say as well when they yeah. come as in. It's yeah. just like this added whole pressure now of yeah. this other world yeah. that normally you know it takes it away from the music, which is the most important. It does, and that's a good way of summarising it. I'd yeah. like to talk to you about some of the acts that you've interviewed along the way. Now, I've gone through a bit of your history here and found some names. I hope that they're all correct. They have been kind of cross-checked from a few different sources, but I'd like to know, what was it like meeting and chatting to this man? The boss. Louisville, Kentucky, <laughs> 1978. Uh, I remember for the first time in my life wearing my knee-high fry boots. Uh, I got frisked going into the venue um, by some redneck uh, who used one of those yeah. sticks to bang the side of the boots yeah. to make sure I didn't have a gun in there, which I thought was a bit stupid until I realised lots of people walk gun. around with guns. Yeah. <laughs> um, seeing Springsteen in 78 was just uh, an absolute dream come true. I rarely am awestruck by the people that I speak with, and I'm lucky enough to uh, have a chat to, but I certainly was with Bruce. Yeah. Um, and this was backstage, and we spoke for ages. Uh, and then... Um, Did you have a beer the, with him? Sorry? Have a drink with him? No, no. Uh, Springsteen's an extremely straight guy, um, not into the excesses. To this day, he refers to his longtime manager, John Landau, as Mr. Landau. Yeah. Uh, and Bruce is, what, mid-70s yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and still going out there doing three-hour gigs. Crazy. Uh, and is old-school polite mm. uh, and very loyal and an incredible human being in every uh, way that somebody can be an incredible human being. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well said. What about this man? Take a walk oh. on the wild side. <laughs> I said, hey, honey. Take a walk on the wild side. And the one and only Mr. Lou Reed. Uh, 74, <laughs> I guess it was, and I was working up in Sydney at 2SM. And um, I was doing Drive at the time, and Lou Reed was invited in, and I was so excited about this, uh, to play an hour of music. 
And we spoke a little while ago about the fact that you could play stuff that you simply can't play anymore. And Lou Reed turned up, regardless of the reputation that some people may have attributed a bit rude, to him. A bit, yeah. But he turned up with a um, uh, like a briefcase that had uh, a whole bunch of albums in it. Nice. Each album had a little bit of paper in it that said uh, side two, track four, this, that, the other. He gave me a list of the songs that he wanted to play, which is what he was asked to do. Mm. He then took out a, uh, a glass jar, unscrewed the lid, and in the jar were, I don't know, a couple of hundred assorted pills, different shapes, colours, sizes, etc. He just poured out a bunch of them into the palm of his hand, slammed them into his mouth, <laughs> Uh, had a glass of water and away we went, and it was what? one of the one of the best hours of music uh, that you've ever heard. And I just sat there, and he was so uh, lucid, so passionate, uh, a dead set music fan. Um, and I wish I could rattle off the songs that he played. I can't. Yeah, that's okay. Um, because I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you have any of those pills? Sorry, no, 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 no I didn't. No. But we then went out for the night. Um, and there was myself, a guy called Mike Drayson, uh, who sadly passed away only a very short while ago. World's biggest Lou Reed fan. And he was the content director at the radio station at the time. And Drayson, myself, uh, a woman called Annie Wright, who was uh, from uh, Lou Reed's record company, RCA, at the time, or the distributor here for it. Lou and a stunning woman called Rachel wearing this beautiful shimmering blue dress who accompanied Lou into the station. And we all went out. Keep in mind, this is mid-70s Sydney, and we had quite a debauched night. Um, Nothing was off the table, uh, and we went to places which in Sydney, when you consider what Sydney was like then, in the cross, places where you had to go down an alley to get into (laughs) them, and this, that, the other... And uh, naively, 1974, I hadn't quite turned 21. What? Uh, I was 20. Uh, I turned 21 at the end of that year. And here am I just with my eyes bulging of what was going on and thinking, this is the life. This is the dream. (laughs) Who doesn't want to be doing this? And as the night went on, this is how naive I was. Uh, I'd been kind of checking out Rachel throughout the night, thinking, what a babe, how gorgeous, how beautiful, until the five o'clock shadow started to emerge. And then I realised the shave the legs and he was a she was Rachel. And and this is one of many incredible memories I have of that night, the rest of which I simply can't talk about (laughs) for several reasons. (laughs) Were people coming up to you? Were people... No, no, people were leaving everybody alone. The places we were going to were the places that were frequented by people who didn't want to be uh, annoyed. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. What a story. A whole different time. What a time. A whole different time. And, and, And can you imagine being that age... And just having this shit happening, it was, it, it, it was just remarkable. What about, uh, what about these guys? What can you say about those guys, huh? Um, and the fact that, uh, uh, and shamelessly, uh, I have Keith Richard... <laughs> saying, hello, Lee, how are you? <laughs> From the interview that You've we did. You've got a yeah. I play that so often on here. <laughs> Coming up soon, the Rolling Stones. Oh, g'day, Lee, how are you? From that wonderful, smoky, gnarly voice that Keith's got. Yeah. Uh, to speak with Keith and Mick and Roddy Wood, the new guy in the band. The new guy. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, the incredible Charlie Watts, what a gentleman, and may he rest in peace. Uh, 
And once again, one of those situations where I'm standing where you're standing right now, and uh, in my headphones are these absolute legends that I grew up listening to. Mm. Um, and I happen to be lucky enough to have stumbled into a career uh, that allowed me to speak to people at that end of the scale. Yeah. Um, which was as exciting as speaking to young bands who you knew were going to do something. Uh, and to have your faith in those bands vindicated yeah. uh, down the track is something that's also extremely gratifying. How would you prepare for an interview? I'm curious about this because, as you know, every act is different. And, you know, if you're speaking to someone as big as the Rolling Stones, how would you approach a chat like that? Uh, homework, um, a combination of homework, trying to make sure that you don't say something really stupid, which. Sometimes I would succeed. <laughs> in, um, and in the earlier era, um, there was no Wikipedia. There was no uh, checking out things online. Yeah. Um, you literally had to either have the knowledge mm. uh, or go out looking for it. And you'd yeah. be going through old magazines. And, uh, and thankfully, there were lots of those around, whether it was Rolling Stone or local uh, publications like you know Duke and Ram and yeah. Go Set and all of those things. Yeah. Uh, you do your homework. Uh, you would as much as possible try and see other interviews that they did. Yeah. Um, but that was the life we led. You loved your music. And so you had a voracious appetite for that sort of information. So when you were lucky enough to actually get to meet and speak with these people, uh, it was your turn yeah. to do something. Yeah. That's really cool. I'd like to play a little game with you. This is called uh, First, Favourite and Forgettable. So I want to know your first interview, your favourite interview, oh. and an interview that, well, you'd rather forget <laughs> with Mr. Lee Simon. First one. Oh. Do you know what? I've never actually thought about this. I love it. The yes, this is what I'm looking for. The first one I actually remember doing, because it stands out because of who it was, I was working at a station called 2NX in Newcastle, which I think is part of our larger family, this yeah. network's yeah. larger family. It's probably called Triple M now yeah, uh, yeah, in yeah. Newcastle. And Olivia Newton-John had come to town. This would have been 1973. No and her dad was a professor at the university in Newcastle at the time. And uh, I forget which Olivia's song was huge at the time, but there was one, whether it was on the banks of the Ohio or something else. And we'd put in a request to speak with her. Yeah. Uh, she said yes, and then she rang and said, look, I'm sorry, I have to get down to Sydney. I'm catching the train down. Uh, do you want to just catch the train with me? Um, so went to the railway station, met her at the platform there Whoa. with my big cassette recorder and interviewed her uh, on the train on the way down to Sydney. Um, and she was just lovely and beautiful and wonderful and very chatty. And it was difficult not to fall in love with Olivia Newton-John <laughs> as a person as well as, as a performer. How good is it to also have an interview like that when the settings are completely different and unexpected too? Like yep. you get to really kind of know someone on a personal level and it doesn't doesn't feel like work, you know? It just yep. kind of feels like you're yep. just having a chat. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and we got to the radio, uh, to the railway station in Sydney, and yeah. she disembarked, and I crossed over to a different platform and went back up to Newcastle, you know? Uh, that was it. So that's one of the first. There Not were bad. others, but uh, that's one that really stands out to me. What was the second part? Favourite. Oh, favourite. So first, favourite, and forgettable. Favourite has to be Led Zeppelin. Love it. Um, 2000 and 
12? Were they out Maybe? here? Were they no, out? I, I got flown over there. It's oh, when they no. released Celebration uh, Day, the live album that they released as their la- as their swan song album, pun yeah. intended, for, <laughs> for the geeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I was lucky enough to have been picked by the record company to fly over to England nice. uh, to interview. It was meant to be Jimmy Page uh, uh, and John Paul Jones. Yeah. Um, and as it turns out, um, the following day, Robert Plant uh, contacted uh, the people putting it all together nice. and said, oh, I've spoken with Jimmy and John. I'm happy to sp- speak to this guy as oh, well. Wow. So I went to Primrose Hill to a pub just down the road from where he lives in Primrose Hill Whoa. and sat there in the front bar at this place in the morning. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm watching this elderly gentleman walking down the street towards us. And I think, God, that looks like Robert Plant. Because it is. <laughs> um, and we went to uh, a little quiet room upstairs and had a chat. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, this is uh, this is the life. Uh, these are heroes of mine. Yeah. I still remember the first time I heard Whole Lot of Love. And I would have been, I don't know, 14, 15, whatever at the time. I think I've got a snippet from Celebration. Um, one of the joys of doing the job that I was lucky enough to do uh, is meeting your heroes. People say you should never meet your heroes, yeah. which is probably the next question you're going to ask because sometimes <laughs> you meet them and uh, that's the end of it. So let's get to... Oh, I don't want to name names. I really well, we, don't. We, we don't have to. I mean, like, it doesn't okay. mean that... Uh... Doesn't mean that they're bad people. Maybe okay. Let's go from. Might have got got them on a bad day. Okay, um, and I'm one of those people who, if I meet uh, an artist, yeah, and they're I don't know if you could say this, but if they're assholes, uh, I stop liking their music. Me it's, too. It's, it's really hard, yeah. and it it really disappoints me when there's an artist whose stuff I like, and then I get to meet them. And they're just turds. They really are. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're not having a bad day. I don't reckon Uh, that's an excuse, uh, to be rude. Yeah, yeah, and you can't do that. And also, don't say yes to doing interviews if you don't want to do them. If you want to do the one-word answers, uh, don't rock up and be the sulky, surly one. I'll I'll give you one because it it actually had a happy ending. We we don't Uh, need to name the art. Actually, no, no. No, no, no. no. This one I'm happy to do. Um, This radio station, so this wasn't an overseas one. The worst one was one that I did in America. And I left there saying, I'm never, ever going to program this guy's music again. Whoa. And I never did. Okay. Uh, came back, took everything off the air. I, I took it really personally. I was offended at how rude this person was and, and what a knob they were. Phil Oakey, he was the lead singer of a band called Human League. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, of course. Uh, had the asymmetrical haircut. It was the early 80s. Came out here for a promo tour ahead of a tour tour. And uh, turned up at the radio station. I was the CD, the content director, and he turned up to do an interview with our drive guy, John Peters, who's a huge fan of the band. Yeah. And I'm in my office listening to it, and he was giving one-word answers. So JP would say, blah, 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 question as fabulous as you should be here. Yeah. And da, 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 Uh-huh. And so I thought that's enough. So uh, I walked into the studio and I gave the cutthroat thing to uh, the signal uh, to John. And he said, we'll be back after the break. Went to an ad break. And I just uh, said to Phil Oakey, right, you, up, out, gone. Interview over. What? Interview over. Leave now. 
but it's only leave, go. So Danny went. Uh, this is when we were in Bank Street, and um, and then John came on at the end of the ad break, and it was kind of like, oh, I feel like he had to leave. And da, 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 da. about ten minutes later, there was on the uh, on the door jam in the office. Uh, oh, yeah. the doors were open, and there he was looking a bit sheepish, Phil Oakey. Oh, really? He said, I'd just like to apologise. I shouldn't have been like that. I was in a really shit mood, and uh, I'd be really grateful if you could give me another shot. Oh, no. And uh, so, no worries. Yeah. And he came, and he was fabulous on air. It makes a uh, difference, doesn't it? But calling him out on his behaviour uh, was something that I did from then on. Any Anybody I tried to interview who gave you one of those one-word answer things, I said, well, look, hey, thanks for coming in. We're done. What? We're done. That's good advice. Life's Jules. short. Absolutely, Jules, we had one of those last week. We're not going to name names, but uh, we we have one of those. We're just uh, going to use that next time. Can you quickly turn off your microphone and just tell me? What? <laughs> really? I can't believe it. <laughs> hey, while you're here, I want to play one game with you. Another okay. game. Okay. You know, you, I, I don't know when we're going to get you in next. You know, Radio Royalty, so we've got to do it. This is called Memory Lane. So what we normally do with artists is we go through their gig history, pluck out random gigs to see what they remember. But oh God. what I've done here is I've asked around the Triple M offices for some Lee Diamond stories oh no. to see what you remember. Oh, no. So, Gee, you would have had to edit those back. <laughs> so I've been sent in. So, so I'm going to read these out, and uh, I, want it, I want to know what you remember. So they're all anonymous as well. So these are anonymous things that have been sent in. But the one and only. The message I have here: Cindy Lauper sitting on his lap in a two-door coupe as they searched for a place that had a machine they could play the tape of her new song on. Do you mm. remember that? I do remember that. Uh, she wasn't sitting on my lap because I was driving. Uh, it was a t- tiny little two-door car, brand name not to be mentioned. Um, and she was sitting on the lap of her guitarist, who was her partner at the time. Yeah. Uh, she had just, the record company had received from America uh, a Umatic tape, it was a, a format of tape, professional size, bigger than VHS, higher quality. But it was on the American system, NTSC, instead of PAL, which is what we were using here. NTSC was laughingly referred to by us as never the same colour. It was a really shit way of uh, broadcasting TV. And I said, I know a guy who's got one. Uh, He's got an office not far from here in Dundas Dundas Lane in Albert Park. Uh, It was Gadinsky. And so we jumped in the car, drove a... Not far to uh, Gadinsky's place, through the machine in the Umaticum. Uh, that was the first time she saw um, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, I think oh it was. Oh, my God. That's yeah. an incredible story. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. True story. True story. Well, True let's story. let's go to, uh, I think, uh, I'm not, I haven't heard this before. I've heard rumors about this. You and Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> How do people remember these stories? Went, went to a nightclub somewhere near Lakeside Stadium in Albert Park. Yes. And what unfolded, I'll let Lee finish the story. Mr. Lee Simon and Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, the floor is, the floor is yours. We... Um... We rocked up at what I think is now called Bob Jane Stadium or something else. It's the uh, the stadium at Albert Park. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so, God, people have got good memories. <laughs> and we walked in there, 
And I reckon we were there for less than 30 seconds. Why? And uh, one of the punters there, young woman there, walked up and she went, Trent Reznor. She knew who, who he was. Yeah. And she clenched her fist and put it in her mouth up to the wrist. <laughs> and Reznor grabbed her other hand. And they turn around, they just left the building. Okay. Uh, is that the story? In Albert Park. Well, I, yeah, I think that's the story. It's exactly what happened. So if you're wondering how to, you know, you've run out of ideas on how to impress a rock star <laughs> and you're able to put your entire fish. And I don't know what the significance of that was either. I don't know. But, but it appealed to Trent Reznor. And uh, <laughs> off they went. I have no idea what happened beyond there. Oh, you didn't say, you didn't hang out with them after that? No. Oh, God, no. Okay. Oh, God, no. Things got a bit yeah. weird. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure it did. They left without me. <laughs> I did that. They left without me. I sort of hung around like a shag on a rocky. Oh, <laughs> shit, what do I do now? <laughs> Uh, all right, we got another one. Uh, early in uh, Eon FM, uh, I remember we had a staff ratings party that doubled as the unveiling of our new production studios in Bank Street. This got uh, new and upcoming acts to come in and play in an area that was quite small, and a band that came in and played was. The one and only crowded house. Lots of bands used to come into the radio station, uh, and they were welcome to do so. Uh, generally, it was during ratings parties. Uh, the yeah. Surveys came out eight times a year, yeah. and when um, the radio station actually got ahead of steam up and was actually pulling in good figures, yeah. it became the must-attend ratings party. We would set up a marquee in the car park out the front. We were in a three-story building, and often we would have a band playing on each floor. Nice. Um, and uh, people from other radio stations uh, used to ring up and say, can we come to your party? And they <laughs> yeah. would. Uh, they were epic. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of misbehaving yep. that took place, but that's okay. It was yep. the 80s. Yep. Um, and what were Crowded and, House like? I uh, mean, the- fabulous. Yeah. Um, and so were the others, whether it was Joe Camilleri, um I've got a feeling Hunters turned up at one particular stage. There were numerous other bands. There were uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, I think, models played at some particular point. Yeah. Um, uh, each survey party had two or three bands just rock up and put in a bit of a set for the folks. Yeah, we said that there were members from Skyhooks at one yes. of them. Yeah. Uh, and the part two of this question is, you've yeah. kind of taken me down the right trail here. In 1985, rating books two. So there were only four rating books back in those days, weren't they? Four, Was it yeah. four? Uh, the, I don't know. I, th- I thought there might have been eight. If okay. there were four, there were four. Okay. So okay. Uh, Eon had a party planned the, at the yet-to-open palace in St Kilda. On the day, they were still painting the walls, and there were about three to 400 people there. And then the ratings came out. It was Eon FM's first number one. And at the time, they had so many cars uh, that were getting FM radios um, it was the first number one, and you had a party at the Palace in St Kilda, which has now been demolished, but an iconic venue. Do you remember that party? I do remember the uh, the first part of that party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, okay, well, there's one more that uh, okay. know, a lot of us need to be thankful you, for. You know that the credo for the 80s was nothing exceeds like excess, <laughs> okay? so yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Thankfully, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there are so many people that need to thank you for this, myself included, and many people to come. And of course, I'm talking about. Now, 
Let's so good to hear a different mix on that as yeah. well. Yeah, let's go back to the early days of. 40- By the way, that's Tism. Tism, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Four da- different versions on that song. Uh, there are. Uh, it's still the original recording. Mm. Um, Damien Cowell uh, worked here. Mm. Uh, Great guy, creative person, mm. who doesn't love Tism? Yeah. And they put that together, and that's been around since whatever year it was when we first put it to air. Before we go into this story, I'd okay. like to play some audio from you as well. Okay. Uh, receiving an award for Triple M Football. Oh. I remember the first meeting that we had with our board uh, went for around about 30 seconds. <laughs> I spoke for 29 of them. They said no, uh, but we kept on going back for a couple of years after that. And uh, it's terrific six years later, and a lot of people have put an enormous amount of effort. We've got some outstanding people involved in Triple M footy, our callers, our special comments people, the people behind the scenes, stats, uh, production, sales, the whole area. Uh, it's terrific. Thank you very much. We're very honoured to get this. Uh, it's a, um, and we accept it with humility, and I will now run off like a screaming teenager and get a promo on air <laughs> as quickly as I can. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best last line of all time, by the way. But talk to us how it, how it kind of came to be. It's, it's a behemoth now. Um, it was just common sense. Uh, we had a radio station which was doing really well seven days a week for six months of the year, and the arse would fall out of it on the weekends. And it wasn't very difficult to work out why the arse was falling out of, yeah. out of it on the weekends. Footy. Um, no FM music radio station on the planet also did live sport so it was a risky thing uh but i thought it was what we needed to do yeah um and as mentioned there it took a while to convince everybody that this is something that we ought to do um we did we started in 1997 it was a complete change of tone and vibe for me yeah um but is there a, a bigger rock star in Australia than Australian rules football. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and obviously there are bigger rock stars, but footy is absolutely up there as a must-watch, must-participate-in, must-listen-to thing. Yeah. Um, and so we started doing it, and here we are 20-odd years yeah. later, mm. and it's very much a staple of not only what this radio station is all about, as in Triple M Melbourne, where it started, uh, but also the Triple M's around the country, whether it's the AFL version, whether it's the NRL version, yeah. uh, which uh, you and Giles has taken over and yeah. doing an amazing job on uh, cricket. So yeah. sport yeah. and music uh, are very happy bedfellows on our network, and it goes back to yeah. that time when we thought we should introduce these two to each other. When you were kind of piecing it together, how did you hear it? Did you Because it is... You know, Triple M has its very own sound when it comes to commentating the footy, and it's you know it's pre shows and post shows as yeah. well is is what makes it so good as well. We made a promise, and I remember the meeting that I had with Wayne Jackson, who was the CEO of the AFL at the time. He said, "How how can you assure me that you're just not going to steal listeners from the other radio stations? How are you going to create a new audience?" and I hadn't really thought it out a whole lot. And I said, well, we're just going to be different. Our major point of difference is we're FM, so it's not going to sound like you're listening to it down a telephone. Mm. Um, And we're also not going to be like the others, where it's a little bit old school. It's a little bit what those people have been doing very well for a very long period of time. We brought in younger people uh, to be involved. And it was a more contemporary thing. We we played music under them on the you know, on the yeah, way to yeah. ad breaks. Um, we ended up with that theme that you played just a little while ago. Um, 
we just did it differently. And there was a bit of a swagger, a bit of a tone, yeah. um, a bit of cheekiness, uh, and that accelerated even more so when James Brayshaw came on board yeah. and there was a reshaping of what we were all about. Um, and it still exists to these days. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, you know, what, what were some of the challenges in the, in the early days once you started television, once you started broadcasting? Taking advantage of the fact that we were the new guy on the block, yeah, but also calming people down who were worried about the fact that we were the new kid on the block and how's this going to be supported. Radio, ultimately, commercial radio is a business. And as soon as the business requirements of doing football made themselves abundantly evident, I'm talking about clients who had never considered buying the radio station. Yeah. They came in in droves. Did they really? Uh, like- Sport brings in its own parcel of um, of sponsors. The other thing was it broadened uh, our listening audience. Yes. Uh, uh, football's renowned for appealing to everybody, birth to death. And in a world where you operate within a very tight guideline of age group and gender and all of that, as far as the format of a radio station, all of a sudden we'd thrown the doors open to the radio station to a much broader audience. We took advantage of doing that. This wasn't a challenge. This was an opportunity. All these new ears that came into the radio station every weekend um, to heavily hit them with promos for the stuff that we do during the week. Um, So so it was kind of a win-win-win-win-win situation and continues to be to this day. Uh, Our sport offering, I keep on saying our, even though I haven't worked here for a long time. No, no, absolutely. Um, But the sport offering is the longest running offering that we have on the radio station. Um, And... It sits well with the music offering. Absolutely. Uh, who doesn't love their sport? Who doesn't love their music? And it's intertwined now throughout the weeks as yes. well with the rub shows. Yeah. And it's, it's just yeah. a perfect match. Dead Set Legends, hosts on our shows have yeah. a sport background. There's all there's a sports person within it. Yeah. Um, and it's grown to the point now where uh, there's lots of women as well as men involved on air, off air. Um, yeah. It's just a fabulous thing. Uh, super, super happy about it and super proud of it. Do you have a, a favorite moment? In Triple M footy, maybe a favourite call or a favourite uh, game, or no, probably a favourite result when when the decision to do so was vindicated uh, in our Bible, the survey book. Were there on air moments, countless on air moments? Is there one that I can think of in particular? No, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were a few infamous moments, but <laughs> yeah. we'll let those lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey Lee, this has been so much fun. We've been nearly chatting for an hour. Uh, we've been talking about doing things for ages. I'd love you to come back. So many stories. We'd love to chat more. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. We've got so much to thank you for. Music, football, the legacy you've left here has been so special. It's the reason why a lot of us are here in this building today and why Triple M is such a strong brand, and we've got you to thank for that. So I really appreciate you coming in and having a chat. You're too kind. Thank you very much. All the same, and happy to pop in again some other time. And I've got to go and peel a parking ticket <laughs> off my windscreen now. Sorry to do that again. <laughs> you, you may get a, a little cheeky envelope sent to you. <laughs> <laughs>